0: You're listening to Jepper Bites, the JLF Podcast. I'm your host, Lakshtata. My guest in this episode is Marcus Monik. Marcus is the founder of ISET International and has worked extensively on water, climate, and urbanization, particularly in Asia. With over three decades of experience, his approach combines science and a compassionately humorous eye on the drivers of social change and human behavior. Marcus uses art as well as traditional forms of publication to explore the mosaic of solutions to emerging environmental and other challenges. He is particularly well known for his pioneering work on India's groundwater and interactions between complex social and environmental systems. I got on a Skype call with Marcus to talk about water scarcity and climate change and what we can do to live through and with both. Here's my conversation with Marcus. There is- Did
1: you come to JLF in Jaipur? I came to JLF in Jaipur. I mean the first time I came to the JLF in Jaipur was a couple of years ago. I talked mm-hmm. at it last
0: year. How was the first experience when you when you went to the palace and you saw what JLF has become here? What was your initial reaction?
1: Well, I knew a fair bit about what it was gonna be like and what it had been because I'd been tracking it pretty much since its foundation. Mm-hmm. And been to jlf here, uh, you know the extended ones here, right um you know, I came to India first in eighty four uh, at that point, I was a master' student working at Berkeley, very interested in environmental issues, uh felt that the more I read, the less I knew, um uh, wanted to uh, actually do field work overseas, and came to India at that point. Now that. Was fairly clear, close to the point when Penguin India entered India, hmm. became uh, came into existence, and hmm. to me there has always been a an interest in um, and a use of the larger intellectual frameworks and the question of social transition that's going on, as well as my technical field. Right. So I was coming yeah at that point. You know, I was in the energy and resources group at Berkeley, um, a graduate student uh, doing a, a master's in engineering, uh, an MSE is is more or less where it was, um, mm-hmm. yes. um, really focused on hydrology, focused on um, overall water resources, the interaction with forest cover, that sort of thing. Um, Starting out doing a field study, it ended up being in the Garwal Hills. At that point, it was part of Uttar Pradesh rather than Uttaranchal. Mm-hmm. But very interested um, in the transitions that were happening uh, in India socially. And that was, you know, one of the best ways to get an insight in that is through the literature. Right. And so, um, you know, when Penguin India, at that point, I didn't read Hindi. Um, and at that point, You know, Penguin India was kind of a gateway that opened up uh, for a lot of authors in India to write Mm -hmm. in English. Um, And a lot of that was about the diaspora, about the changes that were going on. Um, And so to me, the the kind of connection between literature and the technical fields I worked on came very early. And Mm -hmm. that led, you know, a strong interest in the JLF um and in addition um you know you look at a lot of work on climate or on water and unless it's extremely well written if it's a technical field you know you can bore an elephant to death from 100 yards <laughs> um it's um it's 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 not very effective at communicating and it's often right. done in an jargon that is you know designed as much to exclude or to create a professional, you know, it communicates, but it's Mm -hmm. targeted towards a very narrow professional audience. Whereas water issues are something, water, climate issues, these touch daily life. Um, And they touch daily life of millions and millions of people. Mm -hmm. And if you can't communicate it in a way that helps people understand, creates a connection, creates a passion and awareness, um, you're not gonna get anywhere mm-hmm. um, and so to me you know there's there's both you know, can see something like the j l f as painting a picture of course that goes way beyond india um right. it's it's a a picture of of numerous issues in society, numerous debates um and it's the kind of communications that ICS really needed to engage um, a much more diverse population in, in questions of how do we, how do we address the, the water problems that are emerging? How do we address the, the growing impacts of climate change? How do we address and manage, you know, that question that's, you know, the fluid mosaic, this, this growth of the urban areas, the growth of the demands of the urban areas, the growth of the uh, aspirations and lifestyles of the urban areas mm-hmm. um, and the water resources on which that's based. Um, you know, the old the old joke in the U.S. is that water flows uphill towards money. Um, <laughs> and if you shake, shake that a little bit further, I'd actually say water is a bipolar molecule. It flows uphill towards money when there's too little of it and downhill away from money when there's too much of it. Um, right you know the um so how do you begin to have that dialogue and how do you get it so that it's something that people are passionate on, passionate right. about you know so that's where the the jlf kind of is its own way of having a lens into society for me
0: mm-hmm.
1: um but it's also a place where i see a unique opportunity to communicate on the issues i'm particularly engaged in mhm
0: So I want to now travel a little bit back in time to when you were a teenager and were in the 70s, just to put a date on Mm -hmm. it. Um, What would 16-year-old you think of how you have dedicated your career to, you know, to being a scientist and to focusing on environmental change? and? Is that something you, that sixteen-year-old you, you would completely believe that this is what you dedicated your career to, or did you want to do something completely different back then?
1: You know, I'd grown up running
0: rivers in the
1: in the Southwest of the United States. My father was a geologist. Uh, my mother's family came from a very uh, socially aware, politically active, engaged family. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so. Um, And and running rivers with a batch of geologists in the early 70s um, was a fascinating thing. You'd see layers and layers of rock in time. And they'd be talking the geology and, you know, here comes the Wingate sandstone as you ran down through the San Juan River into the Colorado. Um, You had a sense of this wildness. Mm -hmm. And my parents involved – you know their first few river trips were just at the time the Glen Canyon Dam was being built and they ran Glen Canyon and would tell us kids about it you know we were a little too young to have actually ta- been taken along but there was an environmental activism streak already emerging there right so I'd be surprised um I would be surprised in a sense at the level of international work that I did right and I be surprised um, at the role of more of climate because I I thought of it in water terms in in uh, in wilderness and in, in protection of just the wild areas. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think Indira Gandhi it's, uh, at the uh, Rio Conference, I think it was the Rio Conference in '82, was the one who articulated uh, really the role of poverty. Um And the whole question of the the human side of the environment, so I would have been less aware at as a sixteen year old right. of how important that would be in my
0: career mm-hmm. I read this article a couple of weeks ago, and it was i mean it gave a very eye opening statistic It was from the national geographic right here uh, august twenty sixth and it said that only point zero zero of the planet's water is available to fuel and feed its 7 billion people because that's how much fresh water can actually be accessed right now. And then it's said that by 2025, an estimated quarter of our population, 1.8 billion, will live in areas plagued by water scarcity and two-thirds of the world's population will be living in water stress regions as a result of used growth and climate change. So my first question with with that with that context is that that 0.007% that the uh, national geographic is talking about of how much water we can access really is there something that is being done and and can it be done that we can increase that percentage over time
1: well you know obviously when they're talking about they're talking about the oceans they're talking about ice caps all mm-hmm. sorts of places um yeah, you know, the answer in terms of access or physical availability of water is sure there are a lot of things you can do. But they're inherently energy intensive. Mm-hmm. You know, you have high saline water for a huge proportion of the world's water resources. That or it's very inaccessible. Mm-hmm. Transport is hugely energy intensive desalinization is hugely energy-intensive. So um, where are you going to get it, and how are you going to get it to people? Right. You know, especially in large volumes, and especially if you think about urban and modern lifestyles. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was first, um, you know, working in in Yemen in the early 90s, the statistic was that I think – People used, on average, less than 10 cap- liters per capita per day in urban areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the piping system came in. Um, and as the minute you have a well and you can turn on the tap, all of a sudden that went to close to Western norms.
0: Right.
1: And so, you know, do we have enough water? There's the question of supply.
0: Mm-hmm
1: and it's not a physical limitation i mean hydrogen and oxygen some of the most abundant elements on the earth um but getting it where you want it in the quality you want it that's an energy thing and then using it the way you use it you know that's another piece you know it's it's piping it's uh it's reverse osmosis you know all of those are uh Directly tied to dollars, rupees, and the other mythologies that we use to um, account for uncalled money.
0: When it comes to these um, these facts and these these things that people aren't really aware of, of you know how all of this is worked out—not just at a government level, but at a local level as well. What role do you think the the news media plays in talking about? water and climate change like in your opinion like how do you think globally and not just america but india as you've been here uh working what do you think the media has been doing right and in a way doing wrong about talking about this stuff
1: you know i think there are many medias and that's one of the challenges that we're we're learning about you know there's the formal news media you know i think they've been doing a lot of things right in terms of trying to investigate issues look at the dynamics of them you know the the challenge in that is that something that is newsworthy worthy tends to be crisis driven right it's rarely it's rarely newsworthy to say hey everybody in X town got all the water they needed today right <laughs> you know and it looks like we're not gonna have a problem for Another 50 years, we'll keep updating you, but, uh, you know, it's all's good here. You know, that right, doesn't, right. Drive, doesn't drive sales. So there's, you know, so the, the news media is a creature of human invention. It responds to human desires, and we tend to dive in and be interested in crises and things like that, rather than the nitty-gritty of solutions. And then you get people diving down into the rabbit holes of, what is real? What is fake? Where the data are? I think some of the early reporting on environmental things, um, because of that need to paint a crisis or that desire to paint a crisis, aired as well on the less than factual side or or on the amplification side. And then when people saw it didn't happen that way, then they turned around and walked walked away from it. You know, one of the biggest challenges, you know, on the climate side, is how do you convey The changes without the precision that people like to think, you know, if you're, they want to know, is it going to rain here today? And if you talking percentages, talking probabilities is another big step. So I think there's a real complication in there. So what Mm -hmm. does the media, right? A lot of it has devoted some attention to it. It's begun to get a a level of attention. It hasn't really tied it as well to meaning in society, I think. It's tended to present
0: it in a technical way. Um, yeah, they're not able to give the context to the appropriate audience sometimes.
1: Right. It's, it's not able to, you know, and, and, it's, and as with the technical people, it tends to miss the lens of the, of the real man. I mean, mm-hmm. I remember talking to people in Gujarat and Mesana district, and similarly to people in, on the Ogallala Aquifer here in Colorado. Um, who would say, you know, and we were talking about groundwater overdraft. This would be late 80s, early 90s, and it was Mm -hmm. just the beginning of recognition that that the overpumping was beginning to be important. Mm -hmm. Um, But you talk to a farmer in Mesaña, and he'd say, you know, I know the water level's falling. Look, I put in an extra length of pipe every year. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been dropping three meters a year here. Um, there's no news in that. And you're telling me it's overdrafted? Yeah, sure, certainly I know that. But your solution just doesn't make sense. I mean, if you're trying to talk about regulating uh, groundwater extraction over the Mesana Aquifer, you know there are a couple hundred thousand wells in that. Um, you don't even know where they are. And besides, and he would say this very specifically, I had a couple of people say it, mm-hmm. you know, this is paying for my kids' education. My son's going to be an engineer. We're not going to be here in 10 years. And so their feet were already oriented in many ways towards the urban areas in terms of the future. Right. Right. Um, and their logic was, hey, you don't have a solution to so- solve this. Getting everybody to cut back, we'd lose all our income. Um, and um, we are already thinking of adapting or changing. They wouldn't mm-hmm. use the term Adapt they wouldn't use the term migrate, Mm -hmm. but they'd say paying for our kids' education. Mm -hmm. They're not going to be, they don't have to do what we're doing. Now that isn't a universal thing, of course, but it showed an awareness of that even at an early stage. And the media never was able to sort of get to that level of detail and articulate that. Right. So those real stories that bring out the complexity, um, you know they tend to be too long. They're they're not bite sized. They're not crisis focused.
0: Right, right. I mean that's that's what I was uh, even thinking. You know, in terms of how people have been reacting to the Amazon fires, and how yeah. it wasn't until people started using the phrase "the Earth's lungs." You know, like using something that's a sound bite. That 20 oh, percent right. of the Earth's air, is, like oxygen, is coming from there. They're free, they're they're literally feeding us air so we can breathe and live. In terms of something, a context like that, do we really, do you think as, as a global you know, society, do we always need that sort of a nudge to, to remind people that this is something you need to be looking at, to be, you need to care about? Or is that just on the surface and on the local level, work is actually the one that's driving change?
1: I think that there's there's two levels that happen. You, It's really useful to have a clearly articulated, compelling narrative that is mm-hmm. large scale. Um, but at the same time, the real changes in the water case, um, and I tend to think of water as a solution space. It's a place where actually solutions are emerging across all sorts of, of mm-hmm. areas. Um, In relation to some of the other issues that are related to climate change. There's a lot of innovation. A lot of it's happening locally. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the uh, and there's a tremendous, you know, you don't have to tell a farmer that water is scarce. They know it and they'll do whatever they can to save. And if you can present them with a better mousetrap to do it, uh, they usually adopt that pretty fast. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of incremental change that happens in people's behavior daily you know, you give them lots of water in their taps and they'll use lots of water. When it starts getting set as short, they use a lot less. People come up with all sorts of innovative ways of doing it. You know, when you look at the climate sort of changes and the impact on water resources, there are some big areas where there really are solutions emerging, whether they'll be at the scale, given the population. I'm not sure, but there's certainly is a lot of innovation. People raising houses, people using water more efficiently, um, people storing water, the rooftop rainwater harvesting, a lot of traditional methods being brought back in, crop shift, things like that. That doesn't alter the big-scale water dynamics of, you know, we have a few places globally where wheat is grown, a few, five or six places where there's the major corn belt. A lot of that's rain-fed. You know, so you could have some massive impact on agriculture and food availability. Mm -hmm. But if you think urban areas and and things like that, there's a lot of innovation going on and a lot of space for that that will make it kick in, you know, as scarcity begins to bite. That's going to be hardest still on the poorest because they often lack the least, uh, you know, have the least resources to pour into innovation. And it takes time. Uh, and that takes time away from earning a living. But the the, the technical ability there is not the limit. If you look at climate change, on the other hand, and you look at some of the heat impacts that are emerging, people live, have a specific uh, temperature range which they're adapted to.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And you get above a certain level for a long enough period and people can't survive. And the only way to do that is um, to have um, active cooling. And that's energy, you know, air conditioning. And if you look at the growth of energy demand in urban areas across Asia, uh, not just India, a lot of that's AC. And I see that as a much more of a a problem area because it's a vicious cycle. The more we cool, the more energy we use, it becomes harder and harder to supply that through non-carbon sources. We We increase the rate of climate change Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a place where it really has an impact on the poor who can't, who don't have permanent living, who don't, can't insulate their houses, can't afford AC. Um, that's a problem area to me. And mm-hmm. it's one that ripples way beyond people because it's also livestock, it's also crop flowering, et cetera. So if you contrast climate change in that and say, where are the biggest problems? I'd say, you know, heat, humidity, massive unsolved issue the biggest thing that's likely to drive migration. Water, Mm -hmm. really nitty, difficult, challenging, but a lot of solutions coming
0: up. Mm -hmm. You mentioned this thing about uh, people raising their houses so they can practically live with water. Um, Mm -hmm. Is that something that you see a lot of coastal cities and towns having to eventually do? Over the next few decades, is that, I mean, is that like something which will pretty much be very common later on? Or because or, I'm, I'm not really sure, is it for flooding reasons that that's what the solution is for? Or is it because that's what the water level is going to rise and we're going to have to live with that?
1: I think that there's, there's a big thing. Um, if you notice globally, um, migration is not very popular. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a huge pressure against people. And if you look at the limited land areas, um, you know, say as, as sea levels rise around India, around Bangladesh or around the Southeast United States, uh, the question of, are people going to come flooding inland? Well, there's going to be a lot of pressure against that. A lot of questions about where, right. right. People can go and where they can be accepted. Um, at the same time, you do find people, um, both on the short-term raising houses and you also have a long tradition in some areas of things that are much more floating. Um, you know, and my own sense is that there's an awful lot of tendency for people to look and innovate in that space. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it requires vi- you know, visioning cities more as Venice than as solid walking streets. Right. It requires... Reenvisioning of a lot of the infrastructure for it. There's, you know, at a micro level, there's a fair bit of that happening. And if you look in a place like, if you walk down central Bangkok, um, there's tons of that. You know, mm-hmm. you walk down Sukhumvit, you go under the uh, under the sky train there, and and now uh, the long walking areas that are connected at the second story into all the skyscrapers mm-hmm. and, and things like that. Um, and so the lower area is... Um, reserved for lower value uses it's restaurants and things like that which can be moved quickly when the floods come mm-hmm. um, you know hospitals are moving their their expensive equipment to the second floor a lot of key things are happening like that you go into the Bangkok subway it's actually a snorkel system where the where the entrance to the subway is raised up by about three meters so it's not as though you know it, it's funny when you when I've taken people walking through central mm-hmm. Bangkok you know, which is very much a low-lying, flooded area, you, know, you take a typical water person walking through it, they don't see any of this until you start pointing it out. Is it a grand solution? I think there's an awful lot of space where we can live better with water and right. that there's a lot of innovation and there's a lot happening at the small-scale local level to do that. Societies in Vietnam have a tradition of that. Even mm. if it's flooded, they prefer to be next to the water. You know, if it's if it's a big city, you know, and you have existing septic systems and things like that, there's a massive question of are you going to be living above a polluted cesspit or are you going to figure out a way to handle all the pollution and existing things in the ground that will Hmm. as that becomes estuarine? That's a that's we haven't really thought about. But I don't think you know, I think this is these are more pieces to be worked through. And my best guess is, you know, cities have always been upwardly mobile socially, and now they're going to be upwardly mobile physically
0: Mm -hmm. on the coastal. Right. Yeah, one, I actually, this week, um, I was supposed to be in Mumbai, and Uh, then I decided to not go because turns out the entire city is, you know, the rains are so bad, people are just staying at home. And they actually released... uh, a little, the people I work with, you know, they released a little message that, oh, if you're planning to come to Mumbai, you know, come some other time because these, all these areas. And even if, even if I'm living in Bandra, you know, uh, which is safer and less water issues over there, people who are right outside Mumbai are not even able to leave their buildings because there's, there's not, there's, there's, there's a river outside their house and that kind of stuff, you know, as a, as a citizen that just scares you that there's a, a one of our biggest hubs is landlocked uh in terms of no business being done no work being done because for a few weeks every year the entire city gets flooded
1: this is what what bangkok dealt with it's you mm-hmm. know or it hasn't dealt with i mean there are huge areas that are really flooded and where it has areas of impact but you can see the beginnings of innovation about right. how you deal with that and how you live better with water. And I think, you know, shifting the paradigm, so saying, rather than how do we keep water out, which just isn't going to be physically possible, right? to how do we have things that actually work better with it? Is it, you know, connecting our high rises at a higher level, mm-hmm. uh, you know, have walking things? um Is it? Uh, changing our septic system so that they don't just <laughs> flood out into it. Um, you know, um, But that's, all of those sorts of things are places where it's not like heat where it's a thermodynamic issue. There's a fundamental issue of thermodynamics with the body needing to be cooled. Mm-hmm. And there's a fundamental energy equation involved in it. Instead, this is a question of how do we design pipes how do we make it so that we our communication systems are secure how do we think about transport in a flooded city <laughs> mm-hmm. and it's particularly you know it's 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 much more doable particularly where water isn't moving fast where you have large storm surges and the the impact of big waves or big currents it gets more complicated but even with that you can design things that have have breakwaters right you know? If you're if you're on you know if you're a kayaker or, a, or a, sh- a person and you know it comes up into the wind and you're on the coast you know to go into the kelp beds you know there are all sorts of natural things that break down the act of action of the heavy waves and you can mm-hmm. ride through. That's why I'm relatively more optimistic in in the coastal types of things than I am in say the heat. And that relative optimism should not be mistaken for saying there won't be massive impacts and that there won't be massive impacts, particularly in the poorest, most dense areas.
0: Thank you for listening to Jepper Bites. This podcast is produced by Launchora, a storytelling and creative learning platform in association with Teamwork Arts, the producers of the Jepper Literature Festival. If you haven't already, do subscribe to our show wherever you're listening to this podcast.